thought I would uh, leave a little dramatic pause there, <laughs> just so that you don't think Pastor Matthew's coming. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. As has been said to you multiple times, happy Father's Day, and welcome to New Hope Church. Um, yes, unfortunately, as one who travels quite a lot for his work, Pastor Matthew and I have both fallen foul to the engine trouble plague, which sometimes comes upon planes. Thankfully, before they're in the air, I always like to find out we have engine trouble on the ground. Uh, Matthew found that out, unfortunately, around about five o'clock last night. And so he asked me if I would come in as his stunt double for the day. Um, you can hardly tell the difference, I know. but. Um, and of course, he didn't want me to preach his sermon. You'll be enjoying that next week. So you'll be enjoying this one this week. <laughs> well, let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for Matthew, our dear, dear pastor. Thank you for him now, even with this unscheduled time, Lord, that you will bless him, that you'll be with him. That, Father, this time, Lord, that the enemy has used to delay him will be a time that you use for the glory of your name. Lord, thank you for this time together to share with my family here. My family, the church, the family of God. Lord, I bless you. I thank you in Jesus' name. So Matthew told me that I had to tell you that he loves you very much, that he will miss you, but he'll be back soon, hopefully. Well, today, since it is Father's Day, and after all, I am the global outreach director, I thought we could look at one of the fathers in the faith. A father of faith who helped build a church among many nations. And of course, even today, such people faithfully work to build the faith of their own people in their own nations that have not known Christ. I actually just got back from Georgia and Azerbaijan on Monday, and so I'm still, if I fall asleep halfway through, you'll know why, okay? If you fall asleep halfway through, that's something else. Anyway, right back from Azerbaijan and Georgia, where I was honored to be with, talk with, and hear from people who I consider fathers of faith in their own nations. And a few months back, I was in India. I'm sporting my India shirt here, by the way, that was given to me by somebody who has been an organizer of movements among their people, 40, 50, 60 different people groups, hundreds of house churches. God is still at work. I want to encourage you, and God is, whether you're a man or a female, God is using you. Of course, I would be remiss. A few weeks back, of course, we had Mother's Day, a Mother's Sunday. In so many of these nations, it is actually the mothers who are doing so much of that work, so I honor them. But today, let's stick with the father. The father I want to talk about today is throughout the New Testament, but in Acts 21, 8 and 9, you don't need to go there, it tells us he was a father to four daughters, who at the time were unmarried, we have no biblical record of his wife, but we see he was a good spiritual father because all his daughters were prophetesses. It says this in 21.8 to 9, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. 
Now, extra biblical sources will tell us that these four daughters continued to live faithfully, spread out, moved into different parts of other nations, uh, and two of them particularly were famously noted in the city of Herapolis, which is in modern-day Turkey, for their faithfulness and their love. Philip was more than an evangelist. He was a father, and a father who raised spiritual daughters, something that, of course, is very close to my own heart, having three daughters of my own. But he was more than just a father to his girls. He was a father to two peoples in faith, the Samaritans and the Ethiopians. You see, Philip was a significant father to the Samaritans, and I want to take some time to encourage us as fathers, mothers, sons and daughters to be as faithful as he was. Allow me along the way to encourage us to consider three obstacles that can stop us from being faithful people that God would have us be like Philip. I'm going to call them Chris's fatherly advice, if you like, since I'm a father and a grandfather now. Now, here's our main passage. We're going to read from Acts 8, beginning at verse 4, and to verse 8, and I believe that should come up on the screens for us. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Much joy came with the preaching of the good news. So who is Philip? And how did God use him to father two national church movements? Well, the first thing to say is this is not the Philip that was called by Jesus to be one of the 12 in John 1. This is a different Philip. The early church father, Hippolytus, said this Philip was one of the 72 sent out by Jesus in Luke 10. But this is not biblical record, so maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. The Lord knows. We do know, however, that Philip was chosen by the church to be one of the seven deacons called to care for the Hellenistic widows in Acts 6, along with Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church. This brother was asked to do servant-hearted work in order to free up the apostles to preach and to teach. Practical and caring work for the poor and neglected was an important part of what Philip started to do. So in Acts 6, it says this. In those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, our hero for the day, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, 
Here's my first bit of fatherly advice. Should be coming up on the screen anytime. Do not let other people's views of you limit or define you. I say this to my girls, I say it to you. Don't let other people's views of you limit or define you. What do I mean? Well, Philip had a Greek name because he was a Hellenistic Jew and this marked him out as different. It's hard for us sometimes looking back through the centuries and the millennia to understand what that really meant in that context. But to some people, Philip would not even be considered a proper Jew, if you like. He was a Hellenistic Jew. He probably spoke Greek as his first language. He was born, as far as we know, in uh, Caesar, Caesarea, Maritime. Again, a very foreign, foreign city. But I believe God is calling us all to be servants like Philip. Sometimes we look back at biblical figures like they're sci-fi or superheroes. We, we find it hard to place them in a context that is real life, that they had the struggles and the things that we face, that they went through so many of the things that are difficult to us. It's hard for us to do that sometimes because we see a snippet, a small piece of what happened. But just remember, these are real people, not superheroes. And remember too that what they did, they did by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that raised you from the dead and is in you today. Now perhaps some of us have some other things in common with Philip as well as the Spirit. I go to the airport a lot and I have a very long-suffering wife and children who take me there and bring me back. Now unfortunately this last trip I, I couldn't actually get any of them. Well one got married and disappeared, very rude of her. The other one was working, also very rude of her. I mean, don't they know I have, you know, timetables and things. So my dear assistant Pam stepped in, took me down to the airport, but on the way back, I had the same problem. Now, I've never used Uber before. I don't know, maybe you are Uber fanatics and you use it all the time, but I've never used it before. And the first thing I found out was that you can actually haggle on Uber, depending on what time you ask for it. So the price went up and down, and I thought, this is crazy. It's just like being back in Azerbaijan or Turkey. But finally, a guy came called Neil. Neil was a nice man, picked me up. We started, and I obviously detected he had a, a non-standard accent, let me put it that way. And so I chatted with him and talked to him. And as time progressed, it turns out that Neil was a follower of Jesus, and we had a great chat and talk, and shared and everything, even prayed with him in my drive when he dropped me off, which was wonderful. But along the way, we passed our church here, the 169. And I said, oh, that's actually where I work. That's where I minister. And he said this to me. He said, oh, my friend went to that church. She said it's like an international church. Ooh, there you go. Guess that church for all people's things is rubbing off a little bit. And even people who don't come to our church have that perception. I was very pleased to hear that. But as he told me where he came from, Liberia, and he told me about some of his struggles, I thought, yeah, as an immigrant myself, I understand a little bit about that. And I'm sure there are people here now that have something in common with our dear friend, Neil, who was not born in the country they now live in. Well, I'm one of them who speaks a language other than US English as their first language. Well, kind of I do too, really. I'm always being told I don't speak proper English. 
Who would say their culture is maybe different to the one they're now living in? Yeah, I guess I can say that too. You see, people have a lot of interesting things in common sometimes if you go beyond some of the initial things. Now, I've lived in five countries. I've been a guy who moved around. Born in England, lived in Hong Kong, Turkey, Azerbaijan, and now America. My father was Welsh, if you know what that is. Small country to the left of Great Britain. And so in my own birth country, I could be considered kind of foreign. You know, in Hong Kong, they called me Guailo. Anybody, any Cantonese speakers around? I've probably got all the tones wrong. Seven tones in Cantonese. Guailo means white devil. <laughs> or, you know, white ghost, depends how you look at it. They also called me Feijai. That was one of my favorites. I would get in a taxi in Hong Kong, and they'd say, in English, but with a bit of Cantonese, where do you want to go, Feijai? You know what Feijai means? Fat boy. <laughs> Anywhere you like, pig face. <laughs> in Turkey, I was called a yabanja. And yabanja means stranger or foreigner, okay? But in Azerbaijan, I was called gonak. Gonak means guest. See, don't you love the Azerbaijanis? They're such a friendly, hospitable people. We're not white ghosts or foreign devils or fat boys. We are guests. That's nice. Of course, I came to America 21 years ago, and I am told very often that I have an accent, to which I always reply, doesn't everyone, <laughs> right? But what they really mean is it's not the right accent. <laughs> it's not a normal accent. It's not a usual accent. And if I had a dollar for every time somebody told me I was Australian, I would have retired by now. <laughs> anyway. Each of these names shows something. They show that I, and maybe my friend Neil, are considered different, or sometimes even less than the majority people. I've been a professional foreigner for many years, just like some of you. But people have many ways of looking at people that are other than them in a way that makes them seem less or inferior. You don't just need to be foreign. Perhaps you don't look like others do. Perhaps you have some negatively viewed mannerisms or looks, perhaps you think badly of yourself because of what someone said. There are very few of us here, I'm guessing, that have not experienced some of these challenges in their life as they grow. So I repeat to you, like Philip, who was looked down on as a foreigner and yet did not let it stop him, do not let anyone's view of you limit or define you. Let God's grace, love, and acceptance speak over you. He loves you, just like Pastor Matthew and more so, and he gave himself for you. Here's my second bit of fatherly advice for you. Do not let tragedy or the evil of others limit or define you. Do not let tragedy or the evil of others limit or define you. After the early days of the church, when all the believers are of one heart and one mind, holding everything in common, some believers, apparently, allowed something to creep into their faith that was not from the Spirit of God. The whole reason Philip was chosen as a deacon was to stop discrimination in the distribution of food to the Hellenistic Jewish widows. You see, unfortunately, even in the family of God sometimes, we can find ways to divide, look down on, or in any way denigrate others who are not quite like us. 
Philip lived with this reality, as did Stephen, his friend and ministry partner. Stephen was a Hellenistic Jew as well, and yet he was given the honor of being the church's first martyr. Some of you may consider that a not too good honor, but it was a wonderful honor to be considered that the first martyr of the faith was actually not a normal Jew. He was a Hellenistic Jew. In fact, his whole name means crown or award for competing. And scripture shows he was honored by the Lord as he was killed. It says that Christ stood up. Remember, he was seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, it says of Christ. Yet when Stephen committed his spirit to God and forgave those around him, it said that he was standing. It's a very powerful picture of honoring the first martyr of the faith. You see, remember this, even though the Jews looked down on Hellenistic Jews as if they were just Greeks, God regards no one as less than any other. I repeat, there are no less than people in the family of God. Here's the context of that time. In Acts 8 and verse 1, we hear about Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judah and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Why am I telling you this story? Because Philip and Stephen were friends. And if you see a friend of yours brutally murdered, it has an effect on you, doesn't it? I unfortunately have not seen a friend, but I've had friends murdered. And I still remember them. I'm sure Stephen did too. It's a great tragedy. It must have been a great heartache for him to lose a man as faithful and wonderful as Stephen to a mob who stoned him and killed him. Every day around the world, persecution goes on to people who love the Lord. But how do we respond when tragedy comes to us? Saul persecuted, arrested the believers, and yet God used the faith of people like Philip to spread the good news. So, real talk and all that, fatherly advice. When bad things happen, do we question the goodness of God? Does evil in the world disprove the goodness of God or make his goodness actually seem all the stronger? Many have lost heart and faith over tragedies in their lives. But Philip, he shared the good news all the more. Why was this? How could he do this? You know, in my role as a global outreach director, I come across persecution and difficult things that happen to people all over the earth. Sometimes the things that the enemy throws at the righteous and those that believe are so hard. We ask, why are some of the most persecuted of faith the most joyful and the bold? There are no simple answers. But let me ask you, Consider this. Before tragedy and challenges come to you, ask yourself what you really believe about the goodness of God. Does he have to prove it to you by keeping all harm away from you, by never letting suffering or hardship come to your door? Does he have to do that? Or is it something that you know to be true 
in every circumstance because the Lord is with you always. That means he's with you in suffering. That means he's with you in persecution. That means he's with you in tragedy too. That these things that you feel, these things that you endure, you do not endure alone, but with the Father. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. We don't like that one, <laughs> but it's very true. We think of many different people. This uh, Indian shirt I'm wearing today, given to me by that brother, they've seen much persecution in India, many difficult things, but it has not tamped down the fire of their faith. In fact, it has made it burn all the brighter. Do not let tragedy or challenges limit or define you or lessen your view of God. Ask yourself about the goodness of God. Hold on to it. Last piece of fatherly advice. Do not let history, yours, your nations, or others, limit or define you. Do not let history limit or define you. Philip took the gospel to Samaria in fulfillment of Christ's word in Acts 1. Remember what Jesus said? You will be my witnesses. And then he gave a whole list of different places. The word witness also means, is also the same word for martyr, by the way. So he was not pulling any punches there. It doesn't sound as good to say you'll be my martyrs to the ends of the earth, but... It's the same word that's used. And the gospel was received by Samaritans with great joy. Sometimes when you share the gospel, is it received with great joy? It was in Samaria. But I don't know if you remember about those Samaritan guys, but there was a feud over two mountains that stemmed back many, many centuries. And this feud created an incredible animosity of all Jews towards Samaritans. Incredible. In fact, people would walk 10 extra miles to avoid going through Samaria. Jesus was rather special in that way. They fought, is it Mount Zion, Jerusalem, or Mount Gerizim, that is the true holy place of worship. And this fight had gone on for centuries. To the Jews, the Samaritans were just faithless outcasts. But to God, they were people waiting to be brought into his family. Philip ignored the history of hatred and contempt towards the Samaritans, perhaps because he'd known some of it himself. And like Jesus in John 4 with a woman at the well, he shared good news with the Samaritans as the Spirit of God empowered and directed him. And because of that, he became a father to the Samaritan church. Eight centuries before Christ, Isaiah talked about the land of the Gentiles that would see a great light in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. It talks of Galilee of the Gentiles. Jesus chose to live in and recruit his first team from a land that was historically scorned as impure, historically seen as a town and a region that was small and blue-collar, I don't know if you realize, but Nazareth was not the capital of that region in Galilee. The capital, the major town in that region, was called Sephoris. This was where the powerful, the influential, 
and the educated people were. This was where the trade was. This is where the money was. This is where the power was. Go to Sephora. That's, if you were going to be smart, you'd go to Sephora. You've never heard of Sephora, have you? <laughs> that may be the first time you've ever heard that name, right? Come on, you can be honest. But you've heard of Nazareth. You've heard of Galilee. That great and mighty city, that influential city, that place for the power brokers, the shifters and the movers in society. Never heard of it. <laughs> Nazareth, this little podunk town, despised for its accent, despised for its mixed race and intermingling, despised for its rather mixed history, you've heard of them. You see, our view of history can be so short-term, but God works through generations. He doesn't want anyone, I repeat, anyone, outside of his family. When God promised Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, he promised him that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That is a powerful thing. And he meant it. Generations of families later, the Lord still means it, and he still does, he really does. No one should be excluded from the fatherhood of God. God longs for all the families of the earth to be gathered into the great assembly of the family of God, and he longs to bless them. Yes, all of them, even the worst ones you don't like or you've never heard of, or they sound funny. God longs to bring them in. Now, as if restoring the unity of the Jews and Samaritans in Christ was not enough, dear Philip went on to be a father to the Church of Christ among another historical people of faith. You see, Philip was kind of the father of the Ethiopian church. In Acts 8 and 26, it shows us how the New Testament church in Ethiopia began. High-ranking official of the queen, or Kandake, was returning home from Israel after Philip testified to him, baptized him, made him ready to bring the gospel to his own people. See, the spiritual relationship between the Ethiopians and the Jews dates back, way, way back. Moses' second wife was an Ethiopian. Moses was criticized at the time by his brother and sister for marrying someone who was kind of other than. But God looks only at our faithful longing heart. He remembers the history. He remembers his promises. And centuries later, the Spirit of God would birth the Ethiopian church through Philip's obedient sharing of the gospel. People always quip about Somebody had to lead Billy Graham to the Lord, right? Right? You may know who that was, or you may not, but you know who Billy Graham is. You see, somebody has to speak, and even a man on a chariot driving by, or a guy in an Uber, perhaps, taking somebody from the airport, could be a significant person speaking into the lives, not just of their own family, but into the family of families that we call countries and nations. God doesn't look on geopolitical boundaries. He looks on the languages and the peoples that are the nations. Our history, personal or national, can sometimes seem like a barrier to our faith or maybe to sharing the good news with others. 
But never underestimate the power and significance of sharing the gospel. Your word to the right person may heal nations. The Ethiopian church can trace their faithfulness back 2,000 years. It's good to get your head around that sometimes in a young country like ours. 2,000 years of faithfulness. All because somebody hopped up into a chariot, explained the book of Isaiah to somebody, and led them to Jesus. Whose eternity might you change by simply sharing the gospel? Do you ever feel that your own personal background or history makes you less able to share the good news? So I repeat my fatherly advice to you. Do not let history, yours, your nation's, or anybody else's limit or define you to what God can do with you. See, the gospel has always been good news to the less than people. Philip didn't let anything stop him from sharing the gospel. In fact, scripture tells us that every believer is a foreigner and an alien to this world. You remember that scripture? We are all foreigners and aliens in this world. But do we live as if we believe that was true? What does God ask us to do to be those foreigners and aliens who speak to this nation, to this planet that we live on? The earth is not our home. It's not our final resting place. So longing to be a part of this world, giving ourselves all our energy, our time, our strength, our attention to what is passing is a fruitless task ultimately. The gospel was accepted with great joy in Samaria and in the heart of the Ethiopian official. Great joy, not suspicion, <laughs> because it was shared with joy and love. Are you worried that you're not an evangelist? Do you need more training? What do you imagine Philip shared? Was it a full four-point sermon covering every aspect of Christian doctrine to ensure they were proper believers? I doubt it very much, very much. He probably shared that Christ loved them, that he showed his love by living a life of obedience to his heavenly Father and then dying on a cross for all people. By rising from the dead and ascending to heaven, he calls us to live a faithful life on earth, just like he did before we are with him forever. The Samaritans have been condemned by the Jews for centuries, and now Philip, a Jew, was inviting them to be part of God's family. Philip's weaknesses as an outsider, according to some, was now used by God to bring in other outsiders. You remember what Jesus said in John 4, 23. He said, the Father is looking for true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking such as these to worship him. I believe the Father is still seeking true worshipers. The Father is still reaching out through us, through others. And whatever your background or your history 
or even how other people view you, the Father is looking for you to become a true worshiper. With true worship comes joy. With true worship comes reconciliation with the Father. And with true worship comes a right view of our Father God. Now there's one very famous other father in scripture, and it's the father of the prodigal son. Many people know the story of two brothers who had a father, and one of the brothers asked if he could have half of the inheritance, basically saying, I wish you were dead, dad, so I could have your money, which is not a very nice way to go, is it? His father did not fight him, did not argue, he gave him his inheritance, and he went, and he squandered it. That's what prodigal means. He prodigiously spent it on things that probably he shouldn't have. And after a while, feeling kind of sorry for himself, and realizing maybe that he'd been rather stupid, came back to the father. And the picture of the father is something that stands out in my mind and has come to me many times over these last few weeks and months as I've dealt with difficult situations in the lives of some of the leaders that I minister with. Jesus tells us that God is like this. When we think of the word father, many people have lots of different images that come in their mind. Some of them are very good, some of them are not so good. Some of us had an angry father, a, a, derelict father. Some of us had wonderful fathers. It, it, it goes on and on. And yet, when Jesus wants to describe the father to us, he says he looks like this. The father looks down the road to see whether his child is coming home. And when he sees him, when this good-for-nothing, lazy, no-good, whatever, fill-in-the-blanks, son returns back, he runs down the lane to embrace him and welcome him back into his family and home forever. In fact, he treats him, if you remember the story, he treats him like an honored guest, killing the best meat, putting clothes and a ring and basically welcoming him in. That's kind of good news. That can bring us joy. Do we see the father like that? When we think of father, do we see a, an old man running down the lane to greet a son? Have you ever known the joy of being welcomed like that into the family of God? If I was to ask you today, what's stopping you from sharing this good news? Or maybe you've never come to the father before. Never, you've never been reconciled to him. What's stopping you today? to be reconciled to the Father? Is it tragedy, history, other people's views and expectations holding you back? Don't let them, don't let them. The Father waits for us, he looks for us. He will cleanse and forgive us and he will run to us. Before perhaps you can even finish making your apology like the prodigal son, the Father runs to you, he embraces you, he draws you up into his arms. He says, you're forgiven, you're loved, and you're home. You're part of the family. 
I want to give us all an opportunity to be part of that family. Now, maybe we're all believers here, maybe we're not. Maybe we've been a believer, but we feel perhaps more like a prodigal sometimes than a believer. Or maybe our faith has grown a little lacking in intimacy with the Father. I really want to give you a chance to do something to restore that. Or if it's your first time, to come to know this Father that we've talked about. And not to allow anything to stand in your way, whether it be history or background, expectations. So I'd like us to pray now and lower our heads, close our eyes. I'll pray over us briefly and I'll give you a, an opportunity to be reconciled or returning to the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you, Father, for this family of God. And Lord, for those who have not known you as Father, Lord, I want to give them an opportunity, even now, to say, yes, I do want to be in relationship with this Father. I do want to know this one who runs down the lane to embrace and to forgive. I do want to be part of the family of God. If that's you, then while we're all bowed and heads down, please feel free to stand up and I'll pray for you and bless you and welcome you into the family of God. Feel free to do that now. I'll give it a few seconds. Stephen stood for the Lord. Philip stood for the Lord. I stand with you for the Lord too. Thank you, Father, for my brothers and sisters. Thank you, Father, for those who know you and for those who do not. Father, I pray you would speak your life and your joy over them. That, Father, they would know the love of that Father who calls us to share in his life and to share this good news for all people. Just as Philip did. The world is waiting. The Father is waiting for all his family to come home. Thank you, Father. Amen.